privilege to um, be here with you again to bring you God's Word. Uh, Our text this morning is Psalm 126. You'll turn with me there. It's going to be on there. Bookmarked the wrong uh, page in my Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. The word of the Lord. Um, Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to your people today in this time in this place so that Jesus might be glorified and that we might worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Amen. So, summertime, it's a fun time uh, for vacations and it's also a time when uh, we look forward to summer blockbusters. And uh, in recent years, it's been comic book movies. And, you know, you can just think about all the different movies that have come out. Uh, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Star Wars, old and new and newish again. Um, Stranger Things, I know it's Joe's favorite. And I think a common theme through all of these shows and movies is they transport us into this fantastic alternate reality where good guys with superpowers fight and defeat the evil guys. And I wonder if why we produce so many of these movies in our culture and why we tell so many of these stories over and over again. And I think it's because it points to a deeper desire that we all share, to want to believe that there's something good, that there's something wonderful, beautiful, truthful, magical, that there's something beyond what we see in our day-to-day lives. Because what we see in our day-to-day lives is decidedly not always uh, good triumphing over evil. Seemingly every other week we hear about crazed killers shooting innocent people. Uh, We read the news around the world and we read accounts of governments oppressing um, their citizens, people starving because there's not enough food to eat. And we wonder, is this all there is? 
Even in our own personal lives, we all experience pain, heartache, suffering, tragedy, loved ones dying young, diagnosis of cancer or heart failure, mothers experiencing miscarriages. The world, it just seems like such an ugly place. It seems like this dog-eat-dog existence where the ruthless get ahead and the idealists get left behind. So how are we to, to dream, to imagine, to think, to conceive of something better without being naive or superficial? Well, I think the Bible gives us the answer, and our psalm this morning gives us this answer. That the world indeed is an ugly place, but it's also a beautiful place. That human beings, we are fallen and sinful, but we are also made in the image of God. It's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can resolve this, this tension that we all sense between what is and what should be. I'd like to prove to you today from our text that because God has restored our fortunes through the gospel, we should dare to be the dreamers of Zion. Because God has restored our fortunes through the gospel, we should dare to be the dreamers of Zion. I want to look at this from two different angles. First, we look backwards in faith at God's accomplished restoration. And second, we look forward in hope of God's final restoration. So looking backwards in faith, looking forwards in hope, uh, we'll start off with looking backwards in faith. So in verse 1, we read that when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Some of your translations might say here that um, instead of restores the fortunes, it might say something like return from captivity. Um, And this gives us a good idea about the historical context that this psalm is addressing. Zion refers to the hill that Jerusalem was built on. So whenever we see the word Zion in Scripture, we should think Jerusalem. When we say see Jerusalem, we should think Israel, the people of God. Uh, And the people of God had been sent into exile. They had broken God's law, his covenant with them. Pastor Joe read this morning from uh, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is is the essence of the covenant that God had made with Israel. If you keep my law, I'll keep you in the land. If you break my law, I'm going to send you into exile from the land. And many of the books of the prophets were essentially God saying to his people, you've broken my law, and I'm going to send you into exile. And after many years of disobedience, he finally did actually send them into exile. But this exile wasn't a final Exile. It wasn't permanent. After 70 years, the Jewish exiles were allowed to return to their homeland and resume the worship of God. 
In Ezra 1, we can read about this account of how this came about. I'll just read a little bit for you here. This is in Ezra 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So we see here that God, after a period of judgment, restored his people. And then they respond in, in, uh, later in the book in Ezra 3. We read about that account here. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so the people could not distinguish between the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. This psalm was probably written during this time of celebration at the restoration of um, the temple of God and the worship of God. And you can see here in Ezra, it says it was a, a joyful shout. People were happy, but people were also grieved because they had seen the first house. They had gone into exile. They experienced the terror of the judgment of God by the hands of the Babylonians. And I think you see that in this psalm. And now it's become uh, a part of the book of Psalms, a part of our scripture. But you might be asking yourself, what is what God did for this uh, strange Middle Eastern people in a faraway time and place have to do with you? Well... Note that the psalmist in the first verse uses the pronoun we. He's inviting his readers to join with him in this, um, in this praise of God, in this rejoicing, in this recounting of his mighty deeds. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted in Jesus, you can claim this psalm for yourself. You are part of Zion, part of God's holy people. The restoration of Zion is your restoration. The psalm wasn't just written for another time and place. 
but it was written for us here today, at this time right now. Have you ever wondered um, why we're so good at remembering all the difficult parts of our lives? And we're so bad at remembering what God has done for us. Our natural inclination is, you know, to gloss over all the countless ways that God has provided for us, both physically, giving us homes to live in, jobs, um, giving us the blessing of being born in the richest nation on earth. Um, But we remember all of the times in our lives when we experience some kind of affliction, some kind of suffering that caused us to wonder, where is God? And oftentimes, we're tempted to look inside ourselves for our assurance of God's um, favor towards us. But if we look inside ourselves, all we're going to find is more doubt, more um, sin, more unbelief. If our assurance is based upon ourselves, then we're doomed. The Christian must remember That's one of the great tasks of the Christian life is to remember. We must constantly be reminding ourselves about all of God's accomplishments for us. I'd like to illustrate this from um, the book of Lamentations, just a brief section, which actually was written during the time of the exile, before this psalm was written. It gives us a little bit of context on what this psalm is addressing. Just going to read a short section from Lamentation 1. This is the prophet Jeremiah talking about Jerusalem. He writes, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among her, all her lovers She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of their distress. And if you go on in Lamentations, it contains some of the most difficult texts in all of Scripture describing in graphic detail um, how terrible the judgment of God was upon Israel for their sin. Perhaps that's where you're at right now, living in lament. Perhaps you've walked in here this morning without a sense of God's pleasure toward you. You doubt that he loves you because of what you've done. Maybe you don't sense his presence in your life. Maybe the Word of God itself seems irrelevant, unhelpful when you read it. 
prayer seems like you're talking to yourself. God seems indifferent or impotent to uh, meet your needs. See, our hearts are so easily swayed to believe the lies of Satan. And that's what they are, lies. He wants to inflict spiritual amnesia upon us. Spiritual amnesia. He wants us to forget what God has done for us. Because all of a sudden in Lamentations, Jeremiah shows us the proper response in times of doubt and suffering. He writes in 321, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, brothers and sisters, God's steadfast love has preserved you and brought you from wherever you've been this week, this month, this year, to this place here now, where God's grace is being poured out, where he's being publicly worshipped by his people. As the people of God, we call each other to remember the works of our great God, the one who, instead of punishing us for our sin, has freely forgiven us through the work of Jesus. You see, it's Jesus who has brought us back to Zion, who has restored us, who has set us free from the captivity of sin, who has given us his spirit, who lives in us and enables us to worship the Father so that we ourselves are actually temples of the living God. This restoration that's recorded in the Old Testament is meant to point us at the greater, to the greater restoration that Jesus has brought us. That God, through Jesus, his perfect sinless life, his unjust, cruel death, and the power of his resurrection, all for us, has restored us to peace, to wholeness, to joy. And if you're not a Christian here today, you're not here by accident either. Turn to Jesus in faith and repentance. Know him as your Lord and Savior and join his people as we march to Zion. This is the beauty of Christianity that it seems too good to be true, yet it is true. C.S. Lewis called it Christianity. Myth become fact. Well, the way you could put it is that it's a dream come true. That God, a holy God, would love and forgive sinners who hate him who have done nothing to deserve his love? The only proper response to this is the response of the psalmist in verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. 
The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. This joy that marks the Christian life isn't uh, something that's just fleeting. It's not just, it's not an emotion, really. It's built upon something deeper, something more solid, the work of God. And it's such that even uh, unbelievers are forced to admit that God has done great things. So, this seems like a tall task because I know for myself, I don't always feel joyful. And it causes me, again, to turn to that, to go to that dark place of doubt and unbelief and does God love me and why am I not happy? Um, what do we, how do we, to understand this description of joy in light of our experience? Well, I know that Joe is going through uh, Eugene Peterson's A Long Obedience in the Same Direction with some of you. I think it's a very helpful book. It covers this psalm as one of its uh, devotions. And he actually writes of joy this. That joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. It is not what we have to acquire in order to experience life in Christ. It is what comes to us when we are walking in the way of faith and obedience. So if you're here today and you don't have, you don't sense that joy in your life, turn to Jesus. Remember Jesus. Remember what he has done for us. Look back on the cross in faith. Lift up your heart to the Lord. Remember that he is for you, that he loves you. So, we look back, backwards in faith. But the very fact that we struggle with joy, the very fact that things are not perfect yet leads us to wonder if God has restored us then why is there still so much evil and this leads me to my second point that to be dreamers of Zion we also must look forward in hope to God's final restoration in verse 4 the psalmist suddenly pivots from looking backwards to looking forwards, he calls out to the Lord, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Wait, but I thought in verse 1 he was just thanking God for restoring the fortunes of Zion. Why is he asking God to complete the restoration? Well, we know that even though some of the exiles had returned to Jerusalem, not all of them, not all of them had returned. Some of them still remained in Babylon. Judah would continue to be invaded and conquered by various empires, um, culminating in the Roman Empire. The word of God would fall silent for over 400 years 
until the coming of Christ. Even though God had restored Israel partially, it was not yet complete. Similarly, even though we've been forgiven for our sins, even though the Spirit now lives in our hearts, we still struggle with our sin. We still are sinned against by others. We still read about the events of Dayton and El Paso. Something is still not right with the world. Something is still not right with us. Jesus has dealt with our penalty for sin, but we still live in the presence of it. And yet, the psalmist, again, calls us to hope, calls us to joy. In verses 5 and 6, he writes, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bearing, bringing his sheaves with him. Right now, we're sowing in, in tears. Life is hard. Things don't work the way they're supposed to. But the psalmist doesn't say here, maybe things will get better. Maybe we'll reap with shouts of joy. Perhaps. He doesn't use that kind of language. He says, shall. This is a promise that we're meant to put our faith in. That's meant to fuel our fight now. There will be a day when we will be vindicated. There will be a day when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That there will be no more sorrow or grief. For the former things will have passed away. The Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, all the sad things will become untrue. That everything that isn't right will be restored to the utmost. Not only restored, but recreated. If you've ever watched um, the end of a marathon or some sort of long sporting event, which is probably the only part you want to watch, do you notice what happens when the athletes approach the finish line? You know, at the 23rd mile or the last lap. Suddenly, even though there should be no physical reason why um, they have more energy. Their efforts are redoubled. They can see the championship so close and it pushes them pushes them beyond their limits. I think that hope in the Christian life serves the same purpose. The Bible gives us these glimpses of the finish line, God's coming restoration, to lift up our heads, to give us energy to fight into the 15th round, even though we might be on the ropes. 
Paul and uh, Timothy, at the end of his life, a life filled with suffering and persecution for the sake of Jesus, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, that I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So brothers and sisters, lift your heads up and behold the glory that awaits you. If you've loved the appearing of Jesus, be assured that one day you will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. This day is something that we don't know. We don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to come like a thief in the night, like Jesus said. And also like the psalmist says here, it's going to come like streams in the Negev. The Negev is a uh, desert region in, to the south of Israel. Desolate. Uh, if you've ever watched nature documentaries, you may have seen what happens when a desert, which for 90% of the time has no precipitation, suddenly experiences uh, rain and all these dry canyon beds and, and dusty trails that were once rivers suddenly are filled with water out of nowhere. And then within a few days, the whole desert blooms with vibrant colors, flowers and wildlife out to um, partake of the new source of food. Life out of death. That's what God does. He brings life out of death. He brings joy out of sorrow. And that is something that we look forward to. <clears throat> so we've seen how we look backwards in faith at God's accomplished work at the cross. And we also look forwards um, in hope at the coming restoration. Uh, I'd like to end where I started with um, another comic book movie illustration. You uh, notice these days that it's, it's almost a um, 24 7 365 days a year news cycle about the next movie that's coming out or the last movie that came out. And um, we're either um, talking about how good Endgame was and how much we're looking forward to the Spider-Man movie or the 20 other movies that are coming up in five years. Or I guess this year the big thing is uh, Star Wars, right? The third prequel, sequel, sequel. Um, and I think there's a uh, connection here 
I think that in the same way, as we're looking back on what God has done, and as we're looking forward to the sequel, we're doing um, what all these fanboys do out there. We're participating in all these uh, Comic-Con panels and, and talking on the Internet about different theories. We're, we're engaged in, in this work. We're interested in what's going on. The Apostle Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians 13 about faith, hope, and love. And he writes that one day, faith will become sight, hope will be realized, but love will never end. Theologians um, like to talk about the already and the not yet. Have you heard that term? That God has already accomplished redemption at the cross, but the kingdom is not yet fully consummated, and that's where we live right now. So we're called to faith, and we're called to hope, but we're also called to love in the here and now. To love God and to love our neighbors. And as we look backwards at Jesus and what he did for us, and as we anticipate his return, let us walk in love. Love for God and love for one another. And know that even when we are with the Lord forever, that love, that love, the love of God will abide with us forever as well.